Our scripture from today, for today is taken from Luke 15, select verses. Um, you can follow along with me in your worship folder or on the screen behind me or page 874 in your pew Bible. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has not lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his, his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come back. And your father has killed the fat fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. So good morning. Good to see you. My name is uh, Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. Uh, I think I'm the only pastor here this morning, and that is because I just wanted, this is a neat thing, I think, but um, Jonathan and Brandon and John, our other pastors, are all preaching some other place this morning. So I, I, I just bring that to you to say that is... Uh, part of the work that God is doing in our church and through our church is the kind of church that God has made us where we have very, very talented people uh, that other church, we get requests all the time. We could have, we could, you know, have people going everywhere uh, almost every week. So just be encouraged by that, that, uh, that your pastors are being busy and, be, and are wanted and, and that the gospel is going forward. So Jonathan's preaching at Cypress Ridge uh, Presbyterian here in Winter Haven. John is a uh, first Presbyterian in Wachula, Florida, believe it or not. So maybe he'll get the gift of tongues and speak in Spanish down there today. Who knows? And Brandon is in North Lakeland at one of our church plants there, uh, Grace Community Church. And so uh, can we just stop and pray for them? I think that'd be fitting. 
um, as their church to pray that, that uh, God would um, cause the gospel to go forth. So, Father, we do pray for those guys and for our time here together that, uh, indeed, the good news of Jesus would ring throughout our county, and we pray that be more and more so. So as those men stand to preach, give them great power, give them great humility, give them your spirit, and prevail upon the hearts of men with the good news of your love for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We start a series this morning that we're going to be calling the Parables of Grace from the three parables in Luke 15, and especially the parable of the prodigal son, which really, they don't really need much introduction. Uh, in fact, uh, if we were, were wanting just to have one section of the scripture where we could spend the next 20 years together, we really could probably just for the next 20 years look at all of the new, there's so much here in this material. We won't do that, I promise. We're going to do about five weeks instead, not 20 years. But I say that just to say there, there's just so much that, that we could, there's, there's so much that's fundamental, foundational to our faith, foundational to the gospel that we say we believe uh, from, from these texts. And so we're going to just spend a few weeks looking at um, what we're going to call the parables of grace here, because they so clearly show us the gospel truth that we're sinners who need to be reconciled to God, and that the act of reconciliation is something that God must accomplish for us. In other words, he has to make up the difference and indeed he has in Jesus Christ. Now we believe that Christianity is grace, and therefore Christians should be gracious people. Can I say that again? If Christianity is grace, and if we believe it, then a consequence of that truth is that it would make us gracious people. And the church should be a culture of grace, a place where sin is dealt with, but honestly and always compassionately and gently at the same time where the commitments we've made to one another trump how we inevitably sin against one another, where if you're a mess or you're struggling or you're weak, you feel right at home, a place where you're loved the very best when you're at your very worst. That's what the church should be. And these stories together show us the grace that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ, and so the grace that we ought to show to one another, the kind of people we ought to be becoming. And this morning, i got to try to not steal thunder from next week and the week after, so I've got to be careful. There's just one lesson. There's one part of this story, one nuance that, that leaps out that I want us to look at this morning, and it's just this, that one of the things we learn here is that God is a seeker and a savior of the lost. That simple. God is a seeker and a savior of the lost, and if that is his heart, then if we're going to have his heart, then we ought to be also. And so there are two truths from this text that are, I want us just to think about together this morning. I want you to see, clearly the text teaches, first, our lostness, the reality of our lostness, what, what it means to be lost, and then secondly, the res God's response to our lostness is to be and to send the seeking Savior. And in light of those two things, our lostness and the seeking Savior, what kind of people do those two truths make us? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first... Let's just work together through this text and see first that it teaches very clearly that there's such a thing as lostness. In each of this, these parables, there's something that's lost. So verses 1 through 7, you see the lost sheep. In verses 8 through 10, there's the lost coin. And then in verse 11 and following, you have the story, which is a famous story of the lost son, the prodigal son. But it really should be the two lost sons. It's the story of the two lost sons, and we'll get to that in just a minute. And so what we see here is that this is a spiritual condition, according to the Bible. If you think about the way spirituality is uh, talked about in our society, 
If you listen closely, you'll hear it's all about self-actualization and then self-expression. Uh, we, we love to throw around the word authenticity. And so if you wonder what the word authenticity refers to, it, it means it's this process of looking deep within to find your true self, to discover who you really are, your true identity, and then to have the courage to create a life where you can do you, where, where your life can, where your outward life can come into conformity with your inward life. Now, the Bible disagrees with this. It says that the problem is not a lack of authenticity, because that is the problem in our culture. That is the problem we're trying to solve. That is, that is, that, those are the stories that we celebrate, are people who are able to have the courage to live an authentic life. But the Bible says, no, the problem is not a lack of authenticity. The problem is a lack of conformity. Listen to how God put it through the prophet Isaiah. I mean, the first parable there is the lost sheep. So taking that metaphor of a sheep, Isaiah says this, we're, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned, everyone, to his own way. Now, the culture hears that and says, yes, amen, more of that. That's what we need. But the Bible, the Bible means something very, very different. That's not at all what God means. It's a description there of the problem, not the solution. Uh, some of you know, we, a few of us did uh, three days on the Appalachian Trail a month or so ago. And uh, there's places where it's kind of hard, you know, you got to make sure you stay on the trail. And so, the trail is marked by the famous white blaze that's painted on trees. And, and I mean, and there are a few places even in our three days where we kind of had to like stop for a minute and figure out where we were because, of course, you know, it's important to stay on the trail. You with me? I mean, that's a good thing. Now, what if you got deep into the mountains in North Georgia, you know, and you said, you know, this just doesn't feel right to me. You know, something inside of me is yearning for something different. It's kind of boring. I, I, you know, in order to be true to myself, I think that I'm just going to ignore the trail markings, and I'm just going to, it feels kind of right to go this way. Now you're laughing. Why are you laughing? So you leave the cleverly marked, the clearly marked trail. You head out into the woods on your own. What's going to happen? You're going to get lost. And then you're in real trouble because I can tell you, it's not easy to find water in the mountains of North Georgia. We found that out. And then there are bears, and if bears don't scare you, there are snakes. And if snakes don't scare you, there are flying insects that want to devour your flesh. We experienced this. There are all sorts of things to be worried about. The Bible says that that is our spiritual condition. God has given us his word. And the Bible is the clearly marked trail for human flourishing, but instead of following the trail, we've, all of us, everyone, no exceptions, everyone, Isaiah says, we've decided, you know, we're just going to go our own way, thank you very much. And as a result, we're lost. There's a place in The Hobbit where Bilbo and the dwarves come to the Mirkwood, and the Mirkwood is a very dangerous place in, uh, in Middle Earth, but they have no choice. Uh, to get to where they're going, it's the only way, it's the only really feasible way to get where they're going. And so uh, they, they, they decide they're going to do this, and they know it's really treacherous, really dangerous. But running through the Mirkwood is, is a path uh, that's clearly lighted, clearly marked, and, you know, it's the way to get through. And so Gandalf the wizard, who, who's been traveling with them, he's leaving them. They're very distraught over the fact that this man who's been guiding them is now telling them, you know, i got to go take care of other business. You're going to go here and so everybody's upset and they're nervous and they're worried and Gandalf gives them some advice he says straight through the forest is your way now don't stray off the track 
For if you do, it is a thousand to one. You will never find it again and never get out of the Markwood. And then I don't suppose that I or anyone else will ever see you again. And then like like a jolly old St. Nick riding off on Christmas Eve, as he rides off on his horse, he keeps yelling back, don't leave the path. Don't leave the path. You know how it goes, don't you? They go along for a while, and eventually their food runs out. They become desperate. They're sure they're going to die. And so as they all settle down, starving, tired, and weary, just settling down to die, they look and see a a light deeper into the woods off the path. And it's a group of elves having a feast Remembering Gandalf's warning, and despite it, they deliberate and decide to rush into the forest off the path towards the lights. But as soon as they emerge in the clearing where the celebration is happening, as soon as they come through the brush and get to the clearing, all the lights go out and everybody disappears. And here are Tolkien's words. He says, they were lost in a completely lightless dark, and they could not even find one another. After blundering frantically in the gloom, falling over logs, bumping into trees, shouting and calling until at last they'd gathered themselves in a huddle. But by that time, they had, of course, quite forgotten in what direction the path lay, and they were all hopelessly lost. If you know the story, you know that that's the moment it starts to go really, really bad for them. And if you don't like spiders, don't read it. And can I say, that, by the way, is why you should read Tolkien, because it is such a great description of what has gone wrong in our lives. It's such an, just such a clear metaphor. Jesus, in that first parable, likens us to sheep. And that's an insult. I mean, you should feel insulted when you read that, because sheep are stupid. They need constant attention and care from the shepherd. They're incredibly stubborn. They're notoriously constantly wandering away and getting themselves into situations they can't get themselves out of. And so like sheep, we have gone astray, the prophet says. And what you need to know is that a sheep, when it gets in real trouble, when it climbs up to some place that it, you know, where it sees really nice grass or whatever the case might be, and it climbs up, when it gets there and it realizes it can't get down, guess what? It won't come down. Here's what the sheep does. It just lies down where it is and waits for someone to come rescue it. I mean, it it is this thing. The sheep will not, when it gets into trouble, will not try to get itself out of trouble. All it knows to do is to lie down, and it will lie there literally until it dies of starvation or until a predator finds it. A sheep, when it gets in trouble, has to be rescued. Jesus says, "We, we are lost sheep. We've gone out intent on doing our own thing and made such a mess that we can't find our way back, that that is the spiritual condition of every single person born into the world in sin. We were made for God, but we're alienated from him. That's what it means to be lost. As simply as I can put it, that's it, that we were made for God, but we've become alienated from him. Because when you leave the path, when you insist on going your own way, you get lost every time because you can't do life without him. Have you, ever, uh, have you ever seen a baby respond 
to her mother's smile. Isn't it the best? I mean, it's like my favorite thing in the world because it's such a clear picture of all of our hearts that every child is meant from the very first moments to experience the delight of their parents and to live all of their days knowing they're loved. It's like the sunshine and the rain that allows a child to get planted and grow. I mean, what happens to kids who are forced to grow up not knowing the smile of mom and dad? They're lost. And sometimes they never get found. And that too is a human example of a spiritual reality. You need to know the smile of God because without it, you're lost. And when the Bible says that because of sin, we're alienated from God, it means that we're not in touch with his heart for us. And this is an objective reality, the Bible says. The relationship we're meant to have with our creator has been disrupted by sin. God is lost to us and we're lost as a result. And that is true objectively, whether you feel it or not. But for most of us, we feel it deeply. I mean, we feel it deeply. And I want to encourage you, that's actually a sign of spiritual health. I mean, the first step to a genuine spiritual life is to begin to subjectively experience the reality of being alienated from God. Most of the people I talk to, when they think of God, they feel shame and condemnation, not love. And I'm taking this from the prodigal son parable, which I'll show in just a minute in detail. But when I use the word lost, I'm referring to this experience of going through life, not knowing God's love, because we're made to know it and feel it in our bones. But here's the thing, without a supernatural work of God in your life, and if you're a Christian, you've experienced this. But without this supernatural work of the Spirit, you will live with a persistent sense of condemnation. When you think of God, you'll feel the familiar tension of relationships where there's deep conflict and hurt, but far more profoundly. And what happens when you feel like this? What, what, what do you do in life when you're going through life with this persistent sense of condemnation and dread when it comes to the one that you're made for uh, and are made to run on the way a car is made to run on gasoline? Well, what happens? Well, the story tells us the, the shape life can take and, and the decisions that we make. It's almost like you come to a fork in the road and there's really one of two ways most people go and, and, and it's surprising. But here is what the scripture teaches are the ways we respond to this feeling inside. Either you become rebellious or you become religious. And you see it in the two boys. When, when you're not sure of God's heart for you, you can leave home or you can stay home. You can mistakenly walk away from your belovedness and look for love in all the wrong places, leaving the path because there's light over there in the forest. That poof is gone as soon as you grab it. Or you can spend your life not knowing you're loved and trying to earn your belovedness through moral achievement and effort. Now here's the lesson. There are two kinds of lostness. There's lostness that looks like the younger brother in the story. This defiantly rebellious boy saying to his father, I, I wish, I'd prefer you just be dead. Because really I want your stuff, not you. So can you go ahead and give it to me so I can get on with my life without you? And then there's lostness that looks like the older brother, dutifully obedient and yet resentful. And what Jesus wants us to see is that they're the same because they both come from the same place. So let's look quickly at this. And again, I want to try not to steal thunder from the weeks ahead. But when the younger boy who goes off away from home, when he's finally reunited with his father, look at verse 21. His first words are these. He says, I'm no longer worthy 
be called your son. Now, we didn't read this part, but we know that the boy doesn't expect to be received warmly when he gets home. I mean, would you? No one would. Because he basically flipped his father off, took his money, and then found that he had wasted it all and had to and had to turn around and come home. And he expects a much ruder welcome when he comes back home. He thinks, he thinks, you know, he's probably not going to be treated very nicely. And so his plan uh, is to offer to become a hired hand and to work to pay back the inheritance that he's wasted because he knows, he knows he's forfeited the right to be called a son. He's really, he really forfeited the right to even be part of the family and he doesn't expect the father to treat him as such. Just make me a hired hand, he says. Let me, let me work for you and maybe I can work enough to pay back all that you've given to me. See, this boy, he thinks... He thinks, and he thought it before he left, and he still thinks it when he comes home. He thinks the way to the father's love is to be good and not to be bad, and he's been bad, and so he's in big trouble. But his problem is he doesn't know how much he's loved. He, doesn't, he didn't know how much he was loved when he left, and he doesn't know how much he's loved upon returning, which is the lesson the parable teaches us when the father greets him as he does. But look, the older brother, he has the same problem. See, when the father comes out to him, when he refuses to come in and celebrate with his, with his family upon his younger brother's return, he begins to hurl his accusations at the father. Verse 29, I slaved for you all these years, he says, and you've never thrown a party for me. So see, he too, like his brother, he thinks he's got the same problem. He thinks too that the way to the father's love is to be good, not bad. And that's why he stayed home. That's why he's been doing what he, that's what's been motivating him this whole time. He says, I, look, I've done all the stuff you've told me to do. Because, and, and, and still, he says, you know, I, he's been terrible, and I've been good, and I'm the one that deserves to be celebrated, not him. And yet you still, you still to this day have not recognized me for all the things that I've done for you. Because he's just convinced that this is the way the Father's heart works, that you, you, you're good and not bad, and then you're rewarded. But he doesn't know how much he's loved. Before he set out to do all of his work, and even now at the end of it. And so the Father has to correct him, verse 31, son. All I have is yours, he says. You could not be more wrong about the reality of my heart toward you. And yet both of them were. And so even though these two boys, their lives look very different, they really were the same. They both are lost. They're both living as if they're not loved by by their father. And the two brothers in Jesus' parable here correspond to the two different groups orbiting Jesus' ministry. In other words, the occasion for these stories is really found in verses 1 1 and 2 up at the top of the passage. And it's an extremely important point to make. There were the tax collectors and sinners there, we're told in verse 1. These were the immoral, irreligious people. For us, the secular materialists, right? The sexually broken and and the moral outcasts of society then and now. And then in verse 2, we're told there were also this other group, the Pharisees and the scribes. So these were the moral, religious people, people like us, people who went to church, people, the good people, the you know, the, the successful people. And the point of the parable is that both groups are lost because they're illustrated by these two boys. And so the person who says, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe there's any ultimate moral order in the universe. I'm just going to do my own thing. That person is lost for sure. But so is the person who says, I believe good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And thank God I'm one of the good people. That person is just as lost. And the parable is meant to uncover that truth for us, but also to explain why it is that the two groups were responding to Jesus the way they were. So Luke 15, 1 says 
that the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near. They're hanging on every word. They're celebrating the kingdom come. They're toasting the kingdom with these dinner parties and celebrating with Jesus. And there in verse 2 are the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're grumbling and they're angry and they refuse to join the party. And they say, who is this man? And why is it? Why would he receive sinners and eat with such as them? Man, it's a scary thing, isn't it? But the parable also helps us understand why it is. Why it is that it works this way, because both irreligious and religious people are lost. But if you're religious, there's a real problem. Because if you're religious, it's harder to feel your lostness. It's harder for you to, to come and awaken to the reality of it. You see, the younger brother, I mean, he woke up in the pig pen with, like, covered in slop and the, you know, ear of corn sticking out of his shirt or whatever the case might be, right? And looked around, and he was like, it's obvious. okay, I'm lost. It can't get much worse than this. I mean, if you wake up in a hotel room with somebody who's not your spouse, okay, this is bad, right? Hopefully. I mean, I, I really believe part of you feels that way no matter who you are, no matter what you say. It's, it's obvious. But see, if you go to church, if you're a relatively good person, if you try to do the right thing, if you're successful in your life, it's harder to feel lost. So you can be just as far away from home as the other kind of person, but just not know it because you never left. Because the strategy for enacting your lostness was not to leave home, but to stay home. And notice, and we're going to come back to this, but we're not going to get into it today. I'm kind of setting the stage a little bit. Notice that the parable ends with, with the younger brother back home. Having had his heart, his heart being prevailed upon by the love of his father. And at the same time, the older brother's still outside because his heart was not prevailed upon by the love of his father. And that's the problem. That's why the second kind of lostness is the most dangerous. And so you see this issue of lostness. But then the second thing, what is the solution to this condition of lostness, and it is what we see here, the seeking Savior. And so the way to spiritual enlightenment and overall flourishing is not through self-discovery and self-expression. We need to tell our, can, can we tell the culture that over and over, kindly, gently, you know, can, can, because, because it's, it's a futile project. The way to true flourishing is not through self-discovery and self-expression. That's the way to, a sure way to become lost. But if you're lost, the only way to become unlost, if you're lost, you have to be found. And in each of these three parables, there's something lost. Then there's a search. You see that? The sheep is lost up there in verse 4. The shepherd drops everything and leaves the 99 and goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. And then in the next parable, verse 8, the coin is lost. And the woman lights the lamp and begins to sweep the floors diligently. She won't go to sleep. She won't end the day until... The coin is found. She, she, all she does is seek the coin until it's found. And then, of course, in this parable at the end, the son is lost. And the father searched the horizon for any sign of, the, of his return. And when he sees him, he runs to him and brings, and brings him home. See, if you're a Christian, you didn't find God. He found you. We don't, we don't find our own personal truth within. The truth has to find us. There's an old song by Rich Mullins where he sings the Apostles' Creed and then the chorus comes and it says, I believe what I believe. It's what makes me who I am. I did not make it. No, it's making me. 
See, that, that's what I'm talking about. There, there's a truth that has to, that, that is not of your own making, but a truth that begins to remake you that has to come into your life. And so here are the two biblical truths side by side that we're wrestling through this morning. Romans 3.10 says this, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Luke 19.10, Jesus saying of himself and of his ministry, the son of man has come for this purpose. This is why I'm here to seek and to save the lost. See, this younger son, he was not saved. Listen, this, is, this, this hit me this week. The younger son is not saved when he decided to go home. That's not the moment of salvation for him. He doesn't come home because he doesn't come home trusting his father's heart. He comes home hoping he can pay back what he's lost. Do you get that? Do you see, what, you see what's happening there? The, the, the boy, his solution to his badness is to become like his brother in his goodness. His whole plan is that he will become more like his older brother. But as we've seen, he's just as lost. And so when he heads home, in the hopes of becoming a hired hand so that he can earn his way back into his father's graces, he's actually moving further away from the father's love. We're going to do a deep dive into that next week, so hang on. But what I want you to see is that the moment of salvation wasn't when he turned toward home. It was when the father turned toward him and ran and kissed him and embraced him and put the robes over his shoulders and the ring on his finger. That's what made him a son, not just a hired hand. He was found. Uh, there's a Broadway musical that is now a book. Uh, it's called Dear Evan Hansen, and... Um, it's a story that really touches, I think, the crisis of the adolescent generation in our time. And, uh, and the most popular number in the show is a, is, a, is a song called You Will Be Found. I mean, it is just, you ought to go home and watch it this afternoon. It is really moving. Um, we, my girls and I watch the Macy's Christmas Day Parade every year at Thanksgiving. And, and you know, they trot out the Broadway, the Broadway you know, performers. And they did, this, they did this number maybe last year or the year before. And we just became enamored with it. But... And so I, the, it's a, I don't have time to get into all of the, the story, but the most popular number is this song called You Will Be Found. Now, you have to imagine what's happening here is this is a, a young a boy, uh, a, a teenager in a high school auditorium in an assembly with his classmates. And here and here and something tragic's happened in the, in the high school, and he's addressing his classmates and some of the, the worries and concerns they have. And here, here are the words. Listen to this. He says, have you ever felt? So imagine, imagine a teenager talking to other teenagers. Have you ever felt like nobody is there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear, like you could fall and no one would hear? Well, let that lonely feeling wash away. Maybe there's a reason to believe you'll be okay. Because when you don't feel strong enough to stand, you can reach, reach out your hand. And listen, this is being sung on Broadway in New York. You ready? And oh, someone will come running. And I know they'll take you home. And then the whole, the whole uh, ensemble, the, the cast comes in and the chorus is just them singing over and over again. You will be found. You will be found. You will be found. Now, I can't make that up. And I don't know the playwrights. But I don't have any, I, I did some research this week. I don't have any reason to think that they're Christians. And they surely meant the story the way you would imagine as a lesson in empathy for high school culture that can be quite cruel, but the truth of what they wrote goes way beyond that. And it tells me that there's something imprinted upon our souls that can't help but make its way out. And it is this, that we all know we need to be found. 
And so the big deal in the story of the prodigal son, the big deal is not the younger boy or the older boy. The big deal in the story is the heart of the father. And what it teaches us is this, is that there is someone who has come running to bring us home. There is a heart like that, that kind of heart that we yearn for in a family or in friends or whatever the case might be, but it's the heart of God because the father in the parable has obviously been on the lookout for his son to come home. Verse 20, it says that when he was still a long way off, the father saw him, and when he saw him, he didn't feel angry. Now, that's astounding because of the way the boy left. He was wishing his father dead. He was saying, I don't really want to have anything to do with you. I'd rather be done with you. Just give me the stuff that I need, and I'll be on my way. And yet, there's no grudge in the father's heart. It says that when he saw him, verse 20, he felt compassion. And then, because of this overwhelming yearning for his boy, he took off running. Now, Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar, has written a lot about this, and he says that that's amazing because Middle Eastern patriarchs never ran. First of all, because they wore these long flowing robes, and so you really couldn't run without tripping, and it's undignified to do so. And so they moved very slowly. But the father, this father couldn't help himself. He was so overwhelmed with longing for his son. He had so much delight in his boy, and he had missed him so dearly, he couldn't get to him fast enough. He ran to bring him home. Now, I don't know what, you know, place you came into the room from this morning, but can I say something to you? That's what God's like towards you. But do you believe that God's like that? Do you believe that at your very worst, your most rebellious, awful self, that God sees you and he's not aggravated? He sees you, he's not angry, he sees you and he feels compassion. Do you believe that? Do you believe that his heart for you is greater than your greatest sin and that the want of his heart is to run to you, to meet you, to kiss you, to bring you home? Do you believe it? Here's the thing. Don't miss the part when the older brother comes home and pouting. He refuses to join the party. And what does the father do then, too? Well, verse 28, he came out seeking him, too. Do you notice that? He didn't just come out and run seeking the prodigal. He came out seeking the older son, too. The boy was unwilling to come in, so the father had to come out. And it says there, verse 28, that he entreated him. That word is pericoleo. He pericoleoed him. That's that word. In other words, he didn't scold him. He didn't lecture him, and probably he should have. He needed a good lecturing, probably, right? But instead, the father came alongside of him, and he tried to reason with him. He tried to reach his heart. He tried to, he tried to say, oh, so you're wrong about me and about my love for you. And the teaching of the parables, that's what God's like towards you, too. But do you believe it? Do you believe that at your very best, your most grossly self-righteous, ungrateful, awful self, because that is you at your very best. That God is ready to welcome you. That's really the aim of the parable, to reason with those like this older brother and to teach a very important spiritual truth, that God is a seeker and a savior. He has come running to bring you home in Jesus Christ, who came all the way from heaven to earth in love. And if you want to know God's heart for you, look to Jesus hanging on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, dying to endure hell in your place in order to bring you home, to reconcile you to God. 
And this, what I'm talking about now, this being reconciled to God is an objective reality. If, if you're hoping and trusting in Jesus to be made right with God, then you've been reconciled to the Father through him, whether you feel it or not. Objective reality, truth, but it's possible for that objective reality to become something that you feel, something that you know and experience subjectively, not just in theory, but practically so that it becomes the, the operating system of your heart. So that when you think of God now, instead of feeling condemnation or dread, instead you feel confidence and warmth and love and welcome. That's the person who's had a salvation experience. That's the person who's been found. But what then? Well, that's what we get to talk about for the next few weeks. But let me finish by just applying this in one very specific way. Can, can we have a family meeting, Redeemer people? Can we talk for a minute as a family? Let's talk about what, what happens to us if God's heart becomes the heartbeat of our church. And I want to do it by just posing two questions to you. And the first is this. Do you love that God loves sinners? And I want to come back to that in, in weeks to come. But I want to put it to you now so you can be thinking about it. I wish you'd write it down somewhere and just, and just pose it to your heart maybe every day for the next month or so. Do I love that God loves sinners even when that sinner that he loves is me? Or do I love that God loves sinners even when the sinner he loves is the person who's hurt me? Is, does my heart rejoice over the fact that God is a lover of sinners? Because if you don't love that God loves sinners, you'll be on the outside of what he's doing. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, verse 2, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But see, if you're a person who can answer yes to that question, then I have a second question for you. If you do love that God loves sinners, then do you love the lost? Does your heart break over the lostness around you? The shepherd, when he learned that one sheep was lost, we're told there, left the other 99 because the priority was finding the lost sheep. There's a place in the Gospels where Jesus said explicitly, I'm here to invite outsiders, not to coddle insiders, Matthew 9, 12, and 13. And that's the message translation, but I've always liked the way Eugene, Eugene Peterson chose to put it there. And I really think it should be the mission statement of every church. We're here not to coddle insiders, but to invite outsiders. And listen, I know, I know, I know that this is a both and and not an either or thing, but I want, I want to push, I want to push us a little bit on this because we're at a place 10 and a half, 11 years in now where the concerns and needs and expectations of those inside the church can become more important than those outside. And where all of the energy can go towards programming for those already here. But surely one of the things we learn from this text is that the church, if it is to have the heart of God, exists for those who are not yet a part of it. Because God is a seeker and savior of the lost. And for that, for, for us, that points us to the 85% of people in our area that do not publicly practice faith of any kind. Younger brothers. In Winter Haven alone, that's 85,000 people lost. And overwhelmingly overwhelmingly unchurched people begin to come to church when somebody they know invites them not because they see a billboard or an advertisement in the paper it's because somebody had a heart for them and invited them which means the only way that we're going to make any dent in that 85 percent number is to figure out how to spend time with people who don't share our faith for the sake of sharing our faith with them and if the church is taking up so much time that you can't be a good neighbor or get to know the other families on the team that you're playing with then we're doing it wrong Listen, that 85% 85 number doesn't take into consideration that all over the area there are people who are in churches who don't preach grace. And so their ministries are not creating gracious people, but creating older brothers. And I'm not usually this direct about this, but I'm a little provoked this morning, okay? So 
bear with me. Because we, we want to love older brothers too. And we want to minister to older brothers. And there are lots of people who come to our church from other churches who are just as lost as people who've never stepped foot in a church. And, and what, is a, what, is a, what, is a, um, what does a younger brother type person need? They need to hear about grace. What does an older brother type person need? They need to hear about grace. And so we've been asking God to grow us because we believe that the gospel of grace changes lives. And we want to share it with as many people as we possibly can. 5% of churches in, in America are growing. That's it. 1% of all of the churches are growing because they're intentionally reaching the lost. Can we be part of the 1%? That's what I'm asking. If God is a seeker and savior of the lost, and if we're to have his heart, can we be that 1%? That's what I'm praying. Where do we start? Where's like the first, the first step in this? Well, here's what I would tell you. Don't ask, well, okay, then where am I called? Who am I called to? That, don't, don't think about it that, that way. Think about it this way. Let me just ask this question. Where are you? Just where are you? Who are the people that are there in the places where you live, work, and play? Who are your neighbors? Do you know? Who are the people you work with and what are their stories? The people your kids play sports with. Where you are, that's where you're called. God might move you. God might move you, but for right now, for right now, just to get started on having the heart of God in a heart for the world, where you are is where you're called. And those people should be on your heart because they're on God's heart. Do you believe that? They should be on our hearts because they're on God's heart. And they should be on your heart because they're on God's heart. You know how I know they're on God's heart? It's very simple. You know how I know? Because you're there. God loves them so much that he would put you there. To be a seeker and a hopeful, hopeful of them becoming saved. But we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional like our Savior was in coming to us. We have to run to bring others home. But when the gospel becomes real to our hearts, that's the very thing. It'll just become the natural thing to do. But we've got to pray that that will be the case. So would you pray with me as we come to the end of our service this morning? And so, Father, that is our prayer, that you would, <laughs> you would use these stories just to melt our hearts. Because I said uh, before, the truth is, uh, we... The, the, <laughs> The heart of the Father in this story should just, should just melt our face off. We should just be like a puddle on the floor like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz at such a great heart. Because there, there is no other heart like the heart of this Father, which is the heart of you, Father. There's no other heart like that in the world. There's no greater lover than you. And at our very worst, and at our very best, which is still our, which is our, our very worst, you, you do not turn away from us, but in compassion and love, you turn towards us. But not only do you turn towards us, but you run to meet us and to embrace us and to bring us home. And so this morning I pray for those of us who would say, I'm, I'm kind of like that younger brother. I've, I've been running away. Would you cause us to hear behind us your footsteps chasing after us? Uh, we need to be found. And would you find us? And so give us grace to turn from our sin 
and courageously to turn toward you, believing that, that you receive the greatest sinners with open arms. And there are some of us who would say, well, I'm, you know, I think I'm kind of like that older brother in the story. And would you work in, in those of us like, like that too and give us great courage not only to turn from our sins, but also to turn from our trying to be righteous on our own, trying to live a life that, where we can get stuff from you and, and not just enjoying you. Please, Father, um, repentance. We're asking for repentance this morning. And so uh, that's a gift that you have to give. And, and so we do pray that you just soften our hearts and turn them toward you. And then just cause us, Father, to weep and to grieve the lostness of this place that you've called us to and the way we can become preoccupied with things that are so far from your heart and call us back to the mission of joining you as you continue even in our day to seek and save the lost. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Uh, this well-known Puritan, <clears throat> John Owen, he, he said, he had this way of saying this that's just really stuck with me over the years. He says, you know, the hardest thing in the world is to believe that God loves us. And yet we commit our greatest sin against him by not believing that he loves us in spite of all that he's done in Jesus for us. And so repentance, this, this work of repentance is repenting of allowing our own condemning heart or the voices that we hear around us convince us of anything other than the fact that we are all those things we just sang. If your faith is in Jesus, those words are true of you, even if it doesn't feel like they're true of you. Sometimes you got to sing it until they begin to feel true. You with me? And so the process of repenting is to continue to remind ourselves of what is true, even against what we feel. And so I'm so grateful that yet again in our liturgy, the Lord gives us uh, a promise to hang on to, that as we go, we're fighting. The work in front of us this week as followers of Jesus is to fight, to believe the truth of these words, that this really is God's heart to you. It's God's heart for you, to bless you and to make his face shine upon you and so forth. And so receive this benediction in faith and go saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief until you really do come to believe it and it changes you into a person like the person that we talked about this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless. Go in his peace.